You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. My family didn't have cable TV for much of my youth, but my great aunt and uncle did, and I would often walk over to their house to watch the kind of shows which thrilled me with their discussion of monsters, mysteries, and magic. The king of these shows was in search of. It was hosted by Leonard Nimoy, and could any casting choice have better occluded skepticism than having that paragon of logic and reason, Star Trek's Mr. Spock, introducing the magnificent march of mysteries that the show paraded before us each week? Just listen to this clip. Long before the Egyptians built the pyramids, someone constructed a vast stone city atop a peak in the Andes. The ruins stand empty and silent. Each carving is a disconnected figure from the past. Yet some common origin might join them together. The Earth itself bears the portraits of still other giants scratched onto a plateau in California 10,000 years ago. Others were etched with precision into an English hillside long before the building of Stonehenge. The tools to carve and move the giants indicate an advanced technology. There is a place where the knowledge and skills to create the giants may be found. The kingdom of Atlantis. Never before have explorers been so close to finding Atlantis. Never have we possessed as many clues, nor have we been able to bring the detection equipment of modern science to the search. Until now. Here's a confession. There's no monster in this week's episode. This episode exists because by far the most popular episode of Monster Talk is episode number 38, Ancient Alien Astronauts with Kenny Fader. It has 25% more downloads than its nearest competitor. We've had more requests for Ken to come back than any other guest. I'm Blake Smith. This is Monster Talk. And today, Dr. Karen Stolzno and I are going to talk to an archaeologist about Atlantis. Cover your kids' ears. Dr. Kenny Fader is back, and there is no beep button. Get ready, because everything you thought you knew about Atlantis is about to be destroyed in a single day. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
Monster Talk. Well, welcome back to Monster oh, Talk, Ken. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a, what a huge. That's a huge mistake. You shouldn't do that. But, <laughs> <laughs> you're a little I, late. <laughs> I, my 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 take on these things is that there's a certain limited amount of life force in the universe. Mm, that's very scientific. As long as you don't have kids, you get to keep all of that for yourself. But as soon as you have kids, they suck it right out of you. You oh. would live forever. But now the kids, you, you, you'll start feeling aches and pains, and you'll and you'll die because of having children. So I've well, got four days to go then. <laughs> exactly. And so you start feeling it. You will you will see the life being sucked out of you and being given to those kids. If 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 life force is synonymous with free time, I am going to have to agree with your hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's one way of defining it. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so, what if you? It, welcome back to Monster Talk. Thank yeah. you. You're, you're, you're our most requested repeat guest by far. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm blushing, but since it's not like Skype video, you can't tell. Well, that's true. So, so what have you been up to, though? I mean, I know actually know the answer to that question a little bit, but why don't you tell our listeners what you've been up to? Well, it's a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, the, my primary project, the thing that I'm kind of really involved in right now, is uh, what I call my, you know, it's it's my fifty sites bucket list, which is. And so there's a long story behind it, a long, uh, some, some background, is that I was having one of those, those, um, kind of those moments you have when you're a professor and you've just given back like a midterm, and you wonder, what the, <laughs> the hell am I teaching, and, and does it make any goddamn difference? Because these kids, are they going to remember what the half-life of radiocarbon is five years from now? Probably most of them won't remember it five minutes from now. <laughs> so what the hell is the point? And the weird thing was, and it's wonderful synchronicity, I got an email from a student, a past student. So this, this all happened maybe five years ago, and he had been a student of mine three or four years before. And just kind of out of, out of nowhere, randomly, he emailed me um, saying, hey, listen, Dr. Fader, you won't remember me, which is true, I didn't. And I wasn't a very good student, which is true, because I went and checked. <laughs> no, he wasn't a very good student. But he says, I loved your class. I just wasn't a real good student back then. And, um, and it really had this impact on me. And a couple of years this is before he, I received the email, he and his wife, and he has two children now, were in the Southwest, coincidentally driving up, what, I-17 from Phoenix to Flagstaff. And he says, and Dr. Fader, we passed a big brown um, uh, National Park Service sign that says, this exit, Montezuma Castle. And I turned to my wife and I said, remember that crazy archaeology professor I told you about? And, I, you know, I was proud of that. Uh, and, and she says, yeah, because, well, I remember he showed us pictures of that site. And I remember it looked pretty cool. Do you mind if we stop here? And his wife, again, according in, in the email, said, yeah, my wife said, that'd be fine. And then he spends the rest of the email just kind of gushing, thanking me uh, for inspiring him and a callow youth at the time to actually think about how cool an archaeological site might actually be to visit and he said that his wife thought it was really cool. His littlest girl was tiny. She didn't, you know, she couldn't process any of it. But that his older daughter, who was like three, now wants to grow up and be an archaeologist. Oh. And I thought, how, how incredibly cool. And then I thought, well, that's, that's what my job really is. It's not that kids are going to remember the half-life of radiocarbon or, you know, what the master sequence time depth is in the Southwest but to kind of open them up to the notion that, you know what, there's this cool shit that mm-hmm. you can go and actually see. You can visit the past. You can, you can time travel by going to see these archaeological sites. So what I, I decided, well, not only should I be doing this in my classes, I should be doing it personally in my life, pick 50 
50, and I've actually seen more than that at this point, but 50 sites that have all in common the fact that they are open to the public, so these are public public places, and that it's these are places where somebody who knows very little about archaeology, but maybe is interested in history, maybe interested in Native Americans, maybe interested in art, maybe just interested in hiking, that they can go to these places and be kind of inspired by these awe-inspiring uh, cliff dwellings and great houses and burial mounds and effigy mounds and spectacular works of art on cave walls. And, and um, so I've, I've been doing that for the last several years, actually, and I'm just about at, at 50, and now hoping that I'm going to get some publisher who's foolish enough to want to actually publish it as a book. That would be awesome. Are you going to call it 50 Sites of Graves? No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was like 50 sites of grace. Oh, my God. You know, that one went right under my head, not over my head. <laughs> but uh, that's going to be something like archaeological odysseys. And, but it's not going to be the 50 sites you should see before you die. Mm. That's been well done to death, I guess. But that's fantastic, though. Oh, it's a great I'll, idea. I'll yeah, that yeah. <laughs> yeah oh. just make the cover basically the same and have them accidentally put it into the you know, adult fiction section. So. Hey, listen, yeah. I, I don't know that it's absolutely true, but I have heard that while well, you can copyright the content of a book, you cannot copyright titles. So hmm. I was thinking, you know, Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, put Harry Potter in there. Put those <laughs> yeah. continents, something in there. Something like that. <laughs> These poor suckers will buy thousands of the books before they figure out, hey, wait a minute. This has nothing to do with Harry Potter. Well, no. SEO for books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you have – now, I, I think I saw that you also have a podcast out. Yeah, I'm doing a podcast with Sarah Head, who's a, um, an archaeologist out in the Midwest, called Archie Fantasies. Oh, it's not Archie uh, Fantasies. I thought it was like a Veronica and Archie thing. You know, I did not, I did not come up with the name of the podcast, <laughs> but I thought that was fine. Yeah. Um, and, if, and again, if people think, oh, this is like the Archie comics – we can we can we can sucker them into into actually listening and draw yeah. them into our you know into, <laughs> to be caught in our web of archaeological. Fantasy. No, it looks fantastic. Uh, I, I I've actually I'm going to subscribe after the show because I just saw it too. right before the show. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's tons of fun to do. Well, it's, no, I I think our listeners. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I bet you get a nice bump in your listenership. This would oh, be great. That's awesome, absolutely. And uh, so, there's no monster in this episode, but we've had so many requests for you to come back. I actually contacted you and said, pick a topic, and you chose Atlantis. And uh, since I gotta love Atlantis. So right. since my uh, I don't know what to call it, nom de net, I guess is Doctor Atlantis. Um, right. This is a shockingly apt topic for us to talk about. I, I think it is. So, Karen, why don't you kick us off? Yeah. Um, so, Ken, how did you get interested in Atlantis, and does this predate your archaeology work? No. And, you know, I'm, here's the deal. I'm not exactly sure what inspired me. But I'll tell you, but one thing I can tell you for sure is that I've done a bunch of documentaries, Talking Head stuff, on National Geographic Channel and the History Channel and, honest to God, the Weather Channel, the Sci-Fi Channel. And if I count up all of these things that I've done, Atlantis, all the others put together don't equal the number of times that I've been asked to comment on the lost continent of Atlantis. If for whatever reason it's this enduring legend, and that uh, within the last month I've been contacted by a production company in Japan, who they're coming to America, they're doing a they're they're doing a show about Atlantis, and they were wondering if I would participate. Because the irony is. (laughs) And there's a bit of an, a language barrier. I mean, obviously, I don't speak any Japanese, and the folks mm-hmm. I've been communicating with 
are pretty good with English, but not perfect. And and this is this is what happens typically is they say, well, would I come and do a, do a, an interview about Atlantis? I said, sure. They ask me, what what exactly would you tell us? And so I I sent them an entry from this encyclopedia I did a few years ago called the Encyclopedia of Dubious Archaeology. So I sent them my Atlantis entry, which is abundantly clear. It's like, look, this is a fantasy. Here's why we know none of this is true. Here's what here's the the, the, the lack of evidence is is absolutely telling. And I send it to them, and then I get an email back from them saying, so, so are you going to tell us that there's no Atlantis? And I responded, <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I'm going to tell you. And I haven't heard back from them, so I'm oh. wondering if they thought, oh, my goodness. Oh, You're a believer. <laughs> it's a documentary, so who knows. But it just, for whatever reason, people are drawn to ancient aliens for sure, ancient astronauts, but Atlantis is, you know, we'll always have Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Well, so for the, I can't imagine any of our listeners don't have some kind of idea of the story, but can you sort of give us a broad strokes overview of the, uh, I guess just the whole story of Atlantis, uh, and yeah, then, sure, but give I us sure give us the public one first, and then we'll kind of get more into the facts behind it after that. All right, well, be- but before I do that, I got I do have another sh- very short story. And I'm only going to reveal this to, to Blake, to you and Karen. Hopefully, I don't want anybody else hearing this. Okay. Okay. Fine. So this, in, in a sense, maybe my first kind of public commentary about Atlantis happened when I was a, a freshman, an undergraduate in college. And I, I, honest to God, this is 1969, and I cannot explain why I thought this was a good idea. I don't remember, because it was 1969, um, and all that implies, but... I was hanging out with a bunch of my buddies, um, and a song came on the radio, which was uh, the song by Donovan. Donovan was a very popular folk singer, Scottish guy, had a lot of real popular stuff. And he had a song which, in fact, was called Atlantis. And it's, it's this, this, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but the no. beginning is him talking, telling the story. The continent of Atlantis was an island in the middle of the Atlantic, which lay before the Great Flood. And it goes on and on and on about Atlantis was kind of the preeminent ancient civilization, and all civilizations and all the gods of the ancient worlds are derived from Atlantis. And then it goes on to this interminable um, chorus where Donovan sings, way down below the ocean, where I want to be, she may be, whatever the hell that means. And he sings that about a billion times. I count it, it's about a billion. So, for whatever reason, me and a bunch of buddies, and remember it's 1969, decided it would be a really cool idea to strip down into our, un- our underwear, wrap ourselves in bed sheets. Each one of us was playing guitar, had guitar, so we each grabbed a guitar and sang the chorus of that song as we walked around the campus for about two hours. What's a logical thing to do after that? Don't you think? I mean, there, there, there must have been some reason why thought, we thought that would be a great idea. And knowing me and knowing my buddies in 1969, we probably thought, maybe this will get us laid. Yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. Anyway, it didn't. But, we, you know, listen. It's oh, a, shocking. And he's in the storm. So, so that was kind of my first public, um, my public experience with Atlantis was singing the chorus of the Donovan song with a bunch of other horny guys wrapped in bed sheets walking around a college campus. Um, but th- the thing is, if you want to know kind of the, the standard modern telling of the Atlantis story, 
go on YouTube and listen to it's all over the place that that song told by told by Donovan the story told by him before he breaks out into song and it's all about the fact that there was this spectacularly advanced wonderful and utopian civilization on an island in the middle of the Atlantic far uh, uh, precociously advanced in technology and in art and literature and in one day and one night, some horrible natural catastrophe struck Atlantis. It was destroyed, but as it was being destroyed, a series of sailors, a number of, of, of boats, left that, that continent, which now was going to be the lost continent, and went out to all of the various continents of the world and began, were, were the seed of civilization in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, in China, in North America, and in South America. So that all the great civilizations, ancient Egypt, the Indus Valley Civilization, the Mound Builders, the Maya, the Aztecs, the Inca, that all of them are much later and paler reflections of fair Atlantis, which was the inspiration for all civilization. And so if you look at the archaeological and historical records, these cultures all appeared almost instantly at some point after the destruction of Atlantis, and they share many, many things in common because they all were derived from the same source. That's the song, that's the, the tale, the story that Donovan tells in the song, and it is, in a very general sense, that's the story you will hear um, in Ignatius, you will read in Ignatius Donnelly's Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, it, it's the stuff that you will hear in Churchwood's work, it, it's stuff that you will hear, it's stuff that you will read if you go online today and Google Atlantis and look at one of the, the not archaeological sites or historical sites, but the, the kind of fringe believers in the lost continent. So it's, it's, it's that same story told over and over again. Great amazingly precocious ancient civilization that is, in fact, the source of all of the ancient civilizations that came after. That's Whoever thought we'd be recommending Donovan on Monster Talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, he's still around. Um, he still uh, performs. Uh, he's ancient as hell. Yeah. And his, his, his daughter is Ione Skye, who's this beautiful woman. She's an actress. She's been in a number of movies. Yeah, I didn't know and that was his daughter. He's an actor, too. Not today. Jonathan Leach. Oh, so... And then, I mean, there's also Marvel in D.C. They have Aquaman and uh, Prince Namor. So well, There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. But aside from pop culture, though, there, there's, uh, uh, there's some... What's the real origin of this story? There's, there's the deal. Um, so often, what I end up having to tell people, very often it's, you know, producers... Independent production companies contact me and they go, we want somebody to talk about Atlantis. We need somebody to talk about the perfect society that Plato developed and that Plato is our ultimate source. And the thing that pisses me off is that about 99% of the story that I just told you about the lost continent of Atlantis is based on poor reading comprehension by the people who are the purveyors of that story. Because none of what I just said that was in Donovan's story, none of that is true. Now, that's not my hypothesis. It's not my opinion. It's go back and read the ultimate source of the story, and you find out that all of that is bullshit. It's not the story that's told in the original source. The source is Plato, who's writing in the 340 B.C., something like that. And he's, he writes... You know, Plato writes in dialogues, right? So he writes these stories as if there were real people having a conversation. 
Um, a bunch of years ago, on the public TV in, I know it was in New York, I don't know how, if it was national, there was a show called Meeting of Minds, and it was produced by Steve Allen, who is an amazing polymath, a, a, a writer, a, a, a skeptic. He was a member of PSYCOP for years. I think he's one of their fellows. Um, and he had a show in which the, the, the fiction was that you would take four historical characters, people who didn't know each other, lived in different continents, different time periods, have actors portray those people, have them sit around the table, and then discuss a topic. So I remember seeing Cleopatra, Charles Darwin, Abraham Lincoln, and Gandhi talking about the topic of slavery. And you had actors who were real bright people, who had backgrounds in history, who didn't have a script, not much of a script, but merely spoke about their philosophies about that topic. That, Plato did that more than 2,000 years ago. So he took real folks, people like Hermocrates and Critias the Junior and Timaeus, and he pretended that they were all in a room together and that their teacher was Socrates. Again, this is all pretend, and that they had a topic that they were going to talk about. Socrates was was the initiator of the conversation, but the students of Socrates were supposed to talk about all this stuff. Plato, a real guy, was really a student of Socrates. Um, and so we are supposed to suspend our disbelief and imagine that these people, who as far as we know, didn't, did not know each other in, re in reality, but we're going to pretend to put them in a room all at one time and discuss a topic that Plato is interested in. And so everything is through Socrates. So if, if Plato gets in trouble with the authorities, he can say, well, wait, that's not my opinion. That's what these guys in this dialogue, that's their opinions. So um, a, a couple of points before I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what actually happened in, that, in those, those dialogues. Um, one is you will hear from people, and I always hear from people, yes, but Plato said this was a true story. No, he didn't. And that's, again, poor reading comprehension. Um, Plato doesn't say anything in the dialogues. Plato is the author. So, yeah, ultimately it all comes from Plato. But, but Plato is putting words in the mouths of, of characters in what amounts to a play. So Critias is the guy who says that Atlantis was real. And then people say, yeah, but Plato wrote the dialogue. Okay, so how about this? In Henry VI... Shakespeare has Dick the Butcher say, you know, the first thing we're going to do when we get in, in power, we're going to kill all the lawyers. So is that Shakespeare saying we should kill all the lawyers or a character in a play? We all understand you know, when Archie Bunker, back in, the, back in the day with all that TV show, All in the Family, when Archie Bunker said these idiotic, misogynistic, racist stuff, was that Norman Lear was the producer of that show. This guy's a real, Norman Lear's a real progressive person. Is that, were those Norman, Norman Lear's perspectives or attitudes or opinions? Hell no. They were a character in a show, and the point was to move along a dialogue or a conversation. So Critias is the guy, not Plato, who says, hey, this story, this story is actually real. I'm not making this stuff up. But we don't have to believe that because it's not Plato saying it. It's a character in a, what amounts to a play. The other thing that bothers the, no, I'm sorry, it bothers the shit out of me is when people say, yes, but didn't Plato talk about Atlantis, the perfect society? And these days, when a, when a TV producer tells me that, I say, I will be on your show when you go back and read Plato. You have to read Critias, that, the dialogue named after this, this, this real-life person, because 
you obviously haven't read it because you don't understand a simple fundamental fact, which is the perfect utopian society that Donovan talks about, that's not Atlantis. That's ancient Athens, a mythical Athens that dates back 9,000 years before Plato's time, 11,000 years ago or more from our time, when, by the way, archaeology shows that, that the ancient Greeks were living in caves and hunting and gathering and fishing. They were not living in complex societies. They were not building temples. They did not have standing armies. They were hunter-gatherers at this, at this point. Um, and, but in the story that Plato tells through Critias, um, the ancient perfect society is in ancient Athens. Atlantis is the bad guy. They're the plot device. In a, in, in a story, and it, and it makes sense. When I tell my students, when I start the, my Atlantis rant to my students, I say, hey, listen, here's a story, right? We have this enormously powerful, uh, technologically sophisticated, um, rich, and militarily aggressive culture. And they're bent on taking over the known universe. And the only thing standing in their way is a small, ragtag group of people who they are not technologically sophisticated, they're not wealthy, they are not um, militarily aggressive, but they are living a perfect society. The force is with them. What, what, and, and they, in fact, are able, despite all the odds, and contrary to what you would expect, they're able to defeat this enormously powerful evil empire. And then I ask kids in the class, what have I just told you? And they say, oh, that's Star Wars. No, 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 it wasn't a Star Wars at all. I was thinking of the Atlantis story as told by Critias. And then I tell them what the whole deal is about. So really, it's, it's Star Wars. It's Star Wars set 11,000 years ago. And just like, just like Plato. That's a long time ago. Plato puts Atlantis <laughs> way the hell far away in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which from the perspective of the ancient Greeks was like another universe, and he puts it 9,000 years before his time. It's, it's a long ago and far away. Nice. That's where he puts it, just the way they do it in Star Wars. Um, so anyway, the actual story, um, it's kind of, it's, I think it's a cool story. Everybody should read the Critias story. Here's the deal. So Socrates starts... In this, in this dialogue, Socrates starts by saying, hey, remember that conversation we were having uh, yesterday? And the students all go, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that society, we were talking about the perfect society, right? And yesterday we talked about, and then Plato gives some of the specifics. Now, anybody who's ever read Plato immediately knows we're, we're beginning with a fiction right there. Because the story that Socrates is telling is right out of the Republic, another Plato, one of Plato's dialogues, but we know that Plato wrote the Republic seven years before. Mm-hmm. So it, this conversation he's talking about that happened yesterday, and actually happened seven years before in this kind of fictional timeline that Plato has made up. So it's really seven, seven years before, but he says it's yesterday. And, and Socrates says, remember, yesterday's conversation was completely hypothetical about a perfect society and what makes them perfect and, and how the, the, the military men are not allowed to accumulate any gold. And the military, they, stay, they live apart from everybody else. And everybody in the society is, uh, is exercises and is healthy. And nobody is allowed to have too much wealth. And so it goes on and on and on. And, and Socrates says, remember, I was talking about that yesterday. But then, and I'm actually going to quote Critias here, Socrates in this 
opening scene says, I might compare myself to a person who, beholding a beautiful animal or either, either created by the painter's art or better still alive and at rest, is seized with a desire of seeing them in motion or engaged in some struggle or conflict to which their forms appear suited. And I tell students again, I tell them, well, I, I show them in my PowerPoint, I show them a picture of a female lion, a lioness from a zoo. She's lying on her back, she's asleep, her belly's showing, her arms are up in the air. And I tell my students, if that's the only thing, that, that lion at rest, if that's the only impression you ever had of a lion, could you explain or describe what makes a lion a lion? And the students all go, well, well no. And then I show them a slide of a bunch of lionesses taking down a zebra. <laughs> and it's, these are incredibly powerful, quick, um, ferocious animals. And one has her jaws wrapped around its neck, and the other is grabbing its hindquarters by its paws. And it's kind of sad for the zebra, but that's what makes a lion a lion. Socrates is saying the same thing. We talked very hypothetically about this, this ancient, perfect civilization. I, would, I, want, I want somebody to tell me about this perfect society. What makes it perfect? We show, us, show that society in a struggle. And he goes on and he says, this, it's like, this is an assignment. It's a homework assignment. I should like to hear someone tell of our own city carrying on a struggle against her neighbors and how she went to war in a becoming manner. And when at war, showed by the greatness of her actions and the magnanimity of her words in dealing with other cities, a result worthy of her training and education. So you get it? Socrates said, yesterday we were talking about perfect society, I gave you guys an assignment. Somebody tell me a story today that's not a hypothetical story about a perfect society. Tell me a story of this perfect society and the best way to do it to show what, what makes them perfect. Tell me about a war how they went to war, and how they were able to defeat somebody in war, and how they were gracious with, with the folks they defeated and gracious with the other people um, in their world. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So it's, it's a homework assignment. And what happens next is kind of funny. Hermocrates is one of the people, he raises his hand, and Socrates says, oh, Hermocrates, do you have a story to tell? And Hermocrates says, um, well, no. 
But yesterday, after you had this conversation, Critias over there, he told us a really great story. So you can imagine if you're you know, a college student today with somebody else volunteering you to tell the story in class. And Critias goes, oh, okay. And that's when Critias says, okay, uh, listen, Plato, this is a story that it's really kind of amazing because all of the details that you said about this hypothetical perfect society, it's amazing. All of those details fit perfectly with the story I'm about to tell, but I assure you, it's a true story. <laughs> well, okay, do you believe Critias, or is this, you know, dramatic effect? Is it like everybody telling a made-up story, but for the drama? If Critias says, listen, Plato, to a story which I'm just, I'm pulling it out of my ass, man, I don't know, <laughs> maybe that's a good story. Isn't it much more dramatic for him to say, Plato, hey, this is a real story. Now, everybody, all of the philosophers and historians of philosophy who read this say the next thing is pretty crucial. Because Critias says, well, here's the deal, Socrates, because he's talking to Socrates. I personally did not observe any of this firsthand, but I heard it from my grandfather, mm-hmm. whose name is also Critias. And my grandfather, he heard it from Dropides, who was an, a more ancient historian, and Dropides, he heard it from Solon, who's even more ancient, and Solon, he heard it from Egyptian priests, who, and he went to Egypt and they told him that story. So it's kind of, Plato is saying, guys, this is a very indirectly told story, it's like telephone tag, so by the time we hear it, it's hundreds of years and many generations removed from the original source of the story. Um, most philosophers, most folks who study Plato say Plato could not have been any more clear in divorcing himself from this story. So he's, he's in fact saying, in a backhanded way, well, I'm making this story up. It's long ago, far away, and we heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy. Um, and then Critias goes on, oh, by the way, Critias tells, Plato, tells Socrates that my grandfather, he, told, he first told the story at a festival. And if you know anything about Greek history, it's a festival where you get a prize for telling the best bullshit story. <laughs> it's like, it's the equivalent of April Fool's Day. And whoever t- makes up the best story gets a prize. So again, Plato is, with a nod and a wink and a nudge, telling people at his time, who all would have been aware of this, Right. It's a true story that, I, that my grandfather told at a, at a festival where you're supposed to make up the best story. And then what he tells is, yeah, long ago there was this, this, this society in the middle of the Atlantic. He put, puts it out beyond the pillars of Hercules, and it's, an, it's a, an island the size of a continent. He calls it bigger than Libya and Asia together. And that, well, they started out okay because the gods put a bunch of twins on that island, but as time, was, as, as time went on and they were removed in time from the kind of godly portion, they got, they got more and more powerful, but more and more corrupt, and they became an evil empire bent on world domination. And they decided, in the story that Critias tells, the Atlanteans decided with their enormous fleet and their huge army that they were going to enter into the Mediterranean and kick some serious ass and take over the world. And the only society that stood in their way was this mythical Athens, who, again, Critias goes into great detail. And, if, if, again, if you've read The Republic, you read what Critias, how Critias describes the perfect Athens, and it's like it's a laundry list of all the stuff that Socrates said Plato 
wrote that Socrates said in the Republic about what would constitute a perfect society. And talks about how wonderful these guys are, and even though they were outnumbered and outgunned and their technology wasn't as, as, as good, they had righteousness on their side. They were able to defeat the Atlanteans, and then after the military defeat, the gods looked down at Atlantis, and they got pissed off, and they decided, we're going to wipe them out in one, in, in one single blow, a day and a night, wipe them out, and the dialogue kind of ends there. And Plato never actually finished the dialogue. So that, 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 that story ends right there. So the deal is we've got this, it's a really, it's actually a pretty, pretty interesting story. And it's very clearly all about a lesson to be learned. It's a work of philosophy. It is not a work of history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also important to point out, I've, I've had people say to me, well, what if maybe Plato found some historical documentation that nobody else in Greece knew about. Um, this is, of course, thousands of years after the fact, but he found this stuff and was introducing it in his dialogue as a way of spreading the word. Well, that's really interesting. And the, the, the best analogy I can give you is supposing, I mean, that, that, the fact that ancient Athens would have had this incredible, it would have engaged in this incredible war against a much more powerful um, enemy and defeated them, and in fact changed the history of the world as a result. Um, if Plato had found a true record of that and was sharing something he believed to be true, well, that would be the equivalent of, say, the Revolutionary War that we had no no documentation, no evidence whatsoever of the American Revolution, but that some historian now finds hidden in some dusty attic an old a book that tells that story. And this guy is now going to publish this because, well, we, this is a part of our history that we knew nothing about, a vital part of our history that explains who we are as a nation. Nobody knew anything about it before, and now I'm going to reveal it. Well, and I ask students, I say, what do you think would happen? And they all say, well, other historians would comment on it. Some historians might say, no, that's, it's a crock. That really didn't happen. Others might say, oh, this is an amazing revelation. We need to find out more. The cool thing, the interesting thing, the relevant thing here, is that after the Critias is distributed, no Greek historians comment on it. Even to say, well, this is a bunch of shit. Well, the reason they don't comment on it is they know it's fiction. You won't find very many historians with PhDs commenting on the Star Wars saga saying, well, wait a minute, none of that shit happened. Yeah. We know that. It's called fiction, so they don't have to. But that's exactly what happens in the case of the Critias Dialogue, the Atlantis Dialogues. Greek historians, at least initially, don't say anything about it. They say, oh, that's interesting philosophy, but they don't comment on it because they know that Plato is telling a piece of fiction. It, mm-hmm. it is a purpose here. Atlantis is a plot device to show how this is how a perfect society should actually behave, and this is by putting them, having a war, it shows that's the ultimate existential challenge, and they, they, are, they prevail, they, are, they defeat this powerful enemy because they are living this perfect life, and we all should be living the way they are, so it's a, it's a lesson for us all to learn, but it's not, it's not history, it's philosophy. And it's really, I mean, through, after Critias and Timaeus dialogues were distributed and people read them, there are people in, in antiquity who wondered aloud whether or not those things were real, but it's really not until the 19th century with Ignatius Donnelly 
who's an American writer and political aspirant who writes this book, Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, that it gets to be a really popular and, and significant argument about, gee, maybe this Atlantis was real, maybe a, a lost continent, the, the existence of this powerful lost continent, maybe that explains the archaeology of the ancient world that we're familiar with, Egypt, Mesopotamia, China, North and South America. And that's and that. After that, now the theosophists get involved, and that's just all sort of hallucinatory. But it's I think it's Donnelly more than anybody else who, in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, inspired the modern mania about Atlantis. That, as I said, continues to this day on cable TV. So, haven't other uh, historical authors written about Atlantis? Isn't it mentioned in um, Thomas More's Utopia? Oh, yeah. I mean, once, once it's out there, people embrace that story and use it for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. And that, that, it becomes a fairly common, but again, as a plot device. Yes. Um, <laughs> and and, and, and it's, 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 it's very rare to find anybody outside, you know, outside of the fringe. Rare to find people with backgrounds in history or archaeology or philosophy who say, no, this is, this, is the, this is a true story, and we just need to find more evidence of it. So what about uh, Heinrich Schliemann? Uh, does, I mean, I know with his finding of Troy, um, it, it seems like, right. I don't know if in real life it matters, but in, in, on documentaries, or, or what are presented as documentaries, he always comes up in these Atlantis things. It's like, well, they thought Troy was a legend, but then Schliemann found it, you know? Yeah. That's a, that, you know, that you and I and Karen, we all know that that is an incredibly specious argument. But my, my favorite is Carl Sagan, um, and I, I have this source someplace, basically called that kind of argument the they laughed at Columbus argument. <laughs> right? Say, well, and people who, of course, don't know the, the reality behind Columbus didn't think the world was flat, and nobody thought it was going to fall over the edge. They just thought it was really far and maybe not navigable. But in any event, the, 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 you know, in the, in the cliché telling of the story, here was Columbus, the brilliant, the, you know, the guy, it's like the guy working in his garage who, who discovers a perpetual motion, and nobody believes him, but he shows they're, they're, they're wrong. And mm-hmm. so that's, he's the great role model. They laughed at Columbus, and <laughs> a, a colleague of mine. So therefore, anybody with a crazy idea must be right. And so this argument is, they laughed at Schliemann. Well... The whole story of Schliemann finding Troy is still kind of up in the air. You know, which level is the Troy that, you know, there's, it's a multi-component site. So which one really was, the, was Troy? Or, and really wasn't that site. We're not even sure of that. But say, so, supposing Schliemann really did find a story that was ostensibly legend, ostensibly myth, and finds out, yeah, there's something to it. That's, that's a one-off. That shows it happens in science. We all recognize, yeah, there are people who come up with crazy ideas that turn out to actually pan out. But each one is individual. Whether Schliemann was right or not bears no relationship whatsoever to some other crazy guy saying, no, I think there was a continent in the middle of the Atlantic. Every individual claim in history or archaeology has to stand on its own. It needs evidence for that story and evidence for some other story just... It, it, again, a buddy of mine used to say, yeah, they laughed at Columbus. They also laughed at Laurel and Hardy. But Laurel and Hardy <laughs> aren't going to be used. as a, That's John Cole, uh, an archaeologist uh, uh, I've known for years. So, yeah, they also laughed at Laurel and Hardy. But nobody says, well, we, we should take those movies a lot more seriously. No, yeah. they, they were funny. 
And the, the Columbus story is kind of a funny story. The Schliemann, that's interesting, about Troy, doesn't have anything to do with, with Atlantis. Right. But then you'll hear, and then we've talked about this a little, Blake, the, the story that, well, but maybe, 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 um, the, the story of Atlantis, it's garbled, maybe. And maybe there are some things, you know, individual facts are wrong, but that overall, the story of an incredibly sophisticated ancient civilization um, being destroyed, an island being destroyed overnight, and now it's, it's, you know, lost in the dimness of antiquity. Maybe Plato was aware of something like that really happening and basically used it as the basis for his Atlanta story. Now, I've heard that argument about a billion times, and usually it's Minoan Crete, the temple of Knossos. All right, that's, that was a very sophisticated civilization um, thousands of years ago. Uh, these guys had contact with ancient Egypt. These guys had contact with, with other civilizations um, in the Mediterranean region. Uh, so this, oh, this is more than 3,000 years ago, and, and in fact, we do know there was a massive volcanic eruption on the island of Santorini, Right, and that that maybe that eruption destroyed the Minoan civilization, and that that was passed down over millennia. And Plato and other guys in Greece knew about that story, and so Plato, it's garbled. Okay, some of the details are wrong, but but at its core, the Atlantis story is based on that. Um, you know, I've heard that so many times. And L. Sprague de Camp, who a, was a wonderful science fiction writer, but also was a, you know, wrote some historical stuff and wrote a wonderful book about lost continents. And basically you know, what, what, what de Camp said was, look, how many details are you allowed to tell in a legend? How many details are you allowed to change in that legend to make it real and still have it, you know, relate to the original story. And he said, when you look at Atlantis, you don't, it's not like one or two details that you would need to change to make it Minoan Crete or Santorini. It's like every detail. So what I did, because I'm obsessive-compulsive, is I read through, once again, I read through Critias and Timaeus. And I had at my side um, various archaeological site reports for Santorini and Minoan Crete. And as an archaeologist, what I did was I said, look, there's a lot of stuff in here that I cannot test, you know, because there's not going to be any archaeological evidence for or against it. But when Plato, and when Plato through Critias, mentions specific details about what a palace looked like, or what animals were on the island of Atlantis, or what the size was of the plains of Atlantis, and on and on. So when, when he gave specific details, I wrote them all down. And I, had, I think I put together like 53 specific material facts that would be archaeologically and geologically testable. And then I went through actual archaeological publications about Minoan Crete and Santorini. And you know what I found? I found... If you look, if, if you are consistent and if you are objective, you come up with exactly one piece of information supplied by Critias to Socrates and recorded in Plato's dialogue, where you could say, yep, that's right. And the, and, the, and the one fact is, wow, the palace and temple was really big and impressive. That's it. And yeah, if you look at the temple at Knossos, it's big and impressive. But every other detail, every other specific thing mentioned in the dialogue, mentioned by Critias, does not match 
the specifics that we know about Minoa and Crete or Santorini. It's not in the middle of the Atlantic. The size of it, way, way long. One of the things that's mentioned several times in the dialogue is that one of the major animals they had on the, on the continent of Atlantis were elephants. Nobody's ever found an elephant either on Crete or in, on Santorini. Um, so uh, the, the metals that were supposedly adorning the walls, auricalcum, which, and we don't even know what the hell that was, but probably was a brass, bronze, copper combination. Nobody really knows, or, or nobody even knows if Plato was just, you know, using a term that was used later for a particular kind of metal, a particular alloy. We don't know. But regardless, there's no evidence of, and this, this auricalcum was supposed to line the walls of the, the, the ancient city, on the, the capital city of Atlantis. Zero evidence for that in Minoan Crete or, or Santorini. It's just, you kind of have to be, again, it's a reading comprehension thing. Read what, either you're going to use Plato as your model, as your source, because, well, that's the first time anybody talks about it. He's the only one who provides all those details. So you're kind of stuck using him as a source. Well, then if you are, you don't get to cherry pick out of dozens of specific descriptions. You, you, you're not allowed to say, well, 52 of them are wrong. Well, I, you know, I think when I actually do the, do the math, it's like 48 of them are wrong. There are a number of them where I can't tell you if they're right or wrong. And there's only one of them that's correct. Well, yeah, if you just look at that one, and it's really general anyway, it's like, you know, that's, that's not a very powerful argument. Mm -hmm. You don't get to change facts. You don't get to cherry-pick facts. Um, you, gotta, gotta, you have to look at this objectively. And objectively, was, this, did Plato hear a story about an ancient destroyed civilization? Oh, maybe. <laughs> Getting back to the Star Wars, I believe that, um, that you know, the, the, the folks behind Star Wars have said... Well, okay, yeah, the, the stormtroopers, they're kind of based on Nazi stormtroopers. The Emperor Palpatine, yeah, he's kind of Hitler. So is Star Wars just a, a, um, a kind of twisted and tweaked version of World War II? I don't think so. I don't think anybody a thousand years from now, if they still have, you know, copies of Star Wars, the original, not the fixed-up ones, if they watched it, I, I don't think people a thousand years from now would be able to legitimately and fairly say, Ah, uh, this is George Lucas telling the story of World War II. Mm -hmm. It's not. Yep. But of course, any, any writer of fiction is going to incorporate into their fiction stuff that they're familiar with, stuff that they've heard of, yep. um, but that doesn't make it a, a, a kind of attenuated or truncated version of something that really happened. It just uh -huh. means they, there are some cool stories in history, and they, and they plugged it in. So I, it seems like uh, that Atlantis is a legend, though, it has been like this... Uh, unstoppable engine of producing bullshit. Do you think maybe um, it should be the incontinent of Atlantis? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, here's the deal. I actually once sat down because I have way too much time on my hands, and I wrote a short story about this guy who says that he's discovered what it was all about. But the real story of Atlantis was that Atlantis was this island where there was this herb that grew there, and it was an herb that gave people everlasting life. And that, uh, and that people wanted it, and it was like, you know, it was, everybody, of course, wanted this herb, this, this material that they made out of this herb for everlasting life. And, and then the island, though, was destroyed in a single day and night now. So now, of course, that we all are still looking for the, the lost condiment of Atlantis. 
<laughs> nice. So, sorry, I thought it was I about apologize. Denver. But... <laughs> you, you can you can remove that from the podcast if you want. No, why um, would I do that? No, right up his alley. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, unfortunately we've we've uh, burned up most of our hour here. Cool. That's totally uh, well, cool. No, it is actually great because I really appreciate you coming back. And um, I believe what we have here is probably the most comprehensive coverage for why there uh, should not be a big effort to keep finding Atlantis. Oh, it's great stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's um, Ignatius Donnelly at the very end of his book actually has a paragraph. Now, remember, he's writing this. This published in uh, 1880s, 1890s. So, he's, so he says... Who's to say that 100 years from now, meaning it would be like 1990, who's to say 100 years from now, and I hope this happens, that the museums of the world will be filled with the statues and artifacts of lost Atlantis, and our libraries will be filled with the books published by the ancient Atlanteans. So he predicted, at least with his fingers, you know, hopefully, that in 100 years after his book was published, that today we'd all be saying, oh, my God, yes, Atlantis, a wonderful, marvelous place, and we have their artifacts in their books. Well, guess what, folks? That has not happened. And so they can keep on looking for Atlantis and finding, you know, uh, geological features off the coast of Bimini and, you know, archaeological sites in Spain and, oh, my God, South America, off the coast of Japan. It's all over the world. Um, and you know, until it's it basically in archaeology, it's all about fact. It's all about data, it's physical evidence. And if you don't have it, you know, go about your business. That's fine. But until you have that kind of irrefutable, um, demonstrable fact supporting that, you know, folks, archaeologists and historians are going to say, you know, I, it's there's better stuff that we could spend our time doing, like visiting 50 real archaeological sites in the United States where the real genius of, of, of antiquity is is um, there for us all to engage in. Oh, I was going to ask you, what's your favorite real location for Atlantis of all these places? Like, Yeah. My favorite real location of Atlantis is, let's see, um, might be Bolivia? Could be because because there are people who say it's it's hard. Well, I, no, here's my favorite. My favorite is um, the South a- Antarctica because mm-hmm. that's that's really good because they can say, listen, of course you're not going to find it. Right. It's under all <laughs> that damn ice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, current right. rates is going to be uh, ten years before we can find it. <laughs> nice excuse. <laughs> no, but you know, ultimately, it's kind of the ultimate far away and long sure, ago. Sure. It's under miles of ice, so don't you don't have to look too carefully because you're not going to find it there. Yeah. Uh, but that may be that may be my very favorite because it it really it's called that's called covering your ass. Put it someplace where nobody. I mean, at, at some point, somebody's going to say, "Well, maybe it was actually on Mars." Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's yep. a good point. It, it flew they off. Built, they built yeah. the Mars face, and until we go there and actually walk around, uh, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, just in closing, Ken, and we've asked you this question before, but sometimes people change their minds. What's your favorite monster? My favorite monster? Oh, my God. Um, I think my favorite monster is I like the Loch Ness Monster a lot. I love the story because I love how it changes through time and how now he's, you know, the Loch Ness, she's a, a, you know, friendly and school kids in Scotland all love Nessie. That may be my favorite. Um, and I've been to Drum the Drocket, so I actually, I actually looked for the Loch Ness Monster. I stood with all those other tourists at the turret of Urquhart Castle and looked across the loch, and all I saw were guys on sailing, sailboards, you know, saying, oh my God, you guys are going to be killed by the monster, but they apparently <laughs> didn't care. 
So and that, that may be my favorite also because when you go into the town of Drum the Drocket, which exists because of the Loch Ness Monster, there mm-hmm. are competing, like, official exhibits. So, you know, <laughs> one side of the street, there's the official exhibit, and the other side of the street is the original exhibit. So I think that's kind of cute. That's yeah. fantastic. That's a great classic answer, though. Well, okay. I, I know you've just scratched an itch that a lot of people had by coming back to talk to us. We really I appreciate it. This is great fun. I love doing it, and and hopefully uh, people will enjoy it. They will, and uh, oh, yeah. we'll put a link to your new podcast and, oh, awesome. and your newest book and your old books and the previous episodes all in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Okay, well, have a great night. I have to yeah. go watch a documentary about uh, uh, this uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> I have to go and listen to the Donovan song. Yes, absolutely. And Karen, good luck. And I, everything I said before about you having a kid being a bad idea, I was telling you absolutely the truth. <laughs> oh, this is, a, this is a runaway train. Have a great night. Thanks, Ken. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Monster Dog. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard Karen Stolzdow and I interview Dr. Kenny Fader about the legends and facts of Atlantis. Links to Kenny's books and additional information is in the show notes at monstertalk.org, including a link to that groovy song by Donovan. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, but our relationship is strictly platonic. The opinions you hear on the show are those of myself and my guests and are not necessarily the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Last year, we tried to set up a cruise to the resort of Atlantis with lectures by Dr. Fader. We may attempt that again in the future. It's still a good idea. It would be lots of fun. This is episode number 98 of Monster Talk. You still have time to contribute to episode 100, and here's how. Hello, listener. How would you like to be on Monster Talk? I don't have time to interview everyone, but I'd like to do something interesting for episode 100 of the show, and I'd like your help. Here's all you need to do. One, decide what your favorite monster is. Two, Record yourself digitally using this format. My name is blank, and my favorite monster is blank. Obviously, don't use the word blank. Fill in your actual information there. And then three, save that file and email it to me, blake at monstertalk.org. And here's the important part. Put the words episode 100 in the email subject. That's all you have to do. Send me your name and your favorite monster as an audio file and put episode 100 in the subject. Thanks for helping us make episode 100 extra fun. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. 
The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine.